Um, well, we are back in 1 Corinthians 10. I had this like super long like recap of where we've been in 1 Corinthians, but that was going to add like another five minutes to our time, so I just cut it. And so uh, actually, if you, if you just have your Bibles, I just invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and hopefully I think we can just by deduction figure out where we've been um, just from this passage. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. And so uh, unfortunately, the uh, some of the translations of uh, most of our Bibles have uh, lumped verse 1 uh, with chapter 11, but I think it actually should be part of chapter 10, but that's okay. Um, chapter 10, verses 23 to chapter 11, verse 1. And if you are there, I'm going to read it for us. This is what uh, the Word of God says. Verse 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be, de- be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is the word of God. How far uh, would you go uh, to put the interests of others above your own? It's a question I want you guys to consider. What kinds of risks would you take to put the needs of others as more important than your own? Um, I was listening to a story on a podcast, um, of course, through This American Life, about a woman named Karen and her mother, Virginia. Uh, And she struggles, Virginia, her mother, struggles with dementia. And uh, Karen and her mom have always been close uh, but the relationship is really put to, te- put to the test when she moves in with Karen, her husband, and her daughter uh, as her dementia worsens. And as some of you know, uh, some of you guys might have um, you know, uh, relatives who suffer from dementia or even Al- Alzheimer's, but one of the early symptoms of dementia is long-term and short-term memory loss. And that's just uh, one of the many, many things that just happens uh, with people who struggle with that. And as her mom gets worse, for as close as they were, again, uh, her, had, her, and her, had, uh, her and her mother had almost no way of connecting. Um, her mother forgot that she lived with her daughter and her family. Uh, and so at first, when, when Karen's mom would have these lapses in her memory, uh, Karen would often correct her. You know, she would say things like, Mom, you live with us. Uh, or, Mom, you can't eat that ice cream uh, because you're diabetic, remember? And her mom would get all mad. Um, and, and so in response, you know, her, her mom would her freak out. And she, she th- she'd say things like, I don't know who you are. Um, I want to go home. Don't tell me what to do. Um, And so while Karen and her husband realized that correcting her mom wasn't going to go anywhere, they just didn't really know what to do. And so they did what anyone actually could do. They just just Googled it. And what they found was that one way to help people suffering from dementia and even Alzheimer's was to step into their world. Now, what's interesting is that stepping into their world was actually a familiar phrase to Karen from the many nights that she had spent doing improv comedy. Uh, She and her husband just happened to be actors. And so stepping into another person's world was kind of their life. 
Um, you, you know, you walk on stage, another actor says something completely unrelated to the discussion, and you just step into their world, whatever, they, uh, whatever, they, whatever world they, that they, they just created. And so stepping into their world meant that you can't question their world or even correct it. You just say things like, yes, and tell me a little bit about that. And so the cardinal rule of improv acting uh, was to just let the dialogue keep going no matter uh, how different the other person's world was. Okay, does it make sense? So what did this look like? And so they sought to apply their trade to how they interacted with their mom by letting her keep talking and letting her steer the conversation wherever it went, even if it wasn't what they wanted to talk about. So if their mom said, I, I see monkeys outside the window of our house in rural North Carolina, Karen and her husband would, would see them too. And, and they would say, yes, and tell me more about these monkeys. What color were they? Um, what were they like? What are they doing? And so rather than flipping out, her mom would tell them about the monkeys, and they would have a very con con uh, constructive uh, and very uh, lighthearted dialogue. Now, obviously, there were no you know, wild monkeys in North Carolina where they lived. And so even, even though seeing monkeys was, was factually incorrect, and as much as they wanted to correct her, they weren't enabling their mom, um, just in case some of you were wondering, wondering, it was just one of the ir irreversible symptoms of dementia. But for just a moment, even for just a brief moment, it was a family, it was, it was as if it was just a regular family, all still, still doing the same thing together, sharing in the same reality, the reality of looking for monkeys in the middle of fall in North Carolina. Rather than correcting her or turning the conversation into a direction they wanted, they actually allowed their mom to lead the conversation, realizing that this was the best way for them to put the interests of their mom as more important as their own, and to allow them, uh, to allow their mom's conversation topics to take precedent over theirs. How far would you go, would you be willing to go, to put the needs of others, the interests of others above your own? If, if you were Karen, and, and, and you, if you just were stepped into your shoes just for a moment, and you had a mom like Virginia, what would you do? You know, I think for some of us, maybe for all of us, this is like really, really difficult to do. Like it's fine for, it's like cute for a day, but like to do this perpetually every day is really, really tiring and super annoying. You know, I think for some of us, we just like to dominate the conversation. <laughs> Um, I don't care that I've just been babbling on for five minutes straight, uh, where we just talk about this thing that I want to talk about for like, you know, these past five minutes. For others of us, it, maybe it's, it isn't our conversations, but it's our time. Like helping this person is super inconvenient and a total waste of your time. And I think for many of us, our biggest challenge is actually our inflexibility with other people. But in our passage uh, this evening, what we find in this story and the, what the Apostle Paul shows us is that the more we love someone, uh, the more we're actually willing to let our freedoms be constrained for the sake of other people. I mean, have you guys ever wondered that? The more, the more that you actually love someone, the more you're actually willing to go along with what they want to do. The more we love someone, the more we're willing to let them talk about what they want to talk about, let them do what they want to do. And this is where the words of the Apostle Paul challenge us because we typically think of freedom, what we want to do, as something that allows us to do whatever we want to do. It's a kind of freedom that exists only for ourselves and for our benefit. But in our passage this evening, Paul completely transforms and reframes our understanding of freedom by pointing us to a different kind of freedom, a radical kind of freedom, a countercultural kind of freedom, where our freedom is used and exercised for the benefit of others, not ourselves. Whereas our understanding of freedom is usually patterned after our culture, Paul wants us to reimagine freedom, a kind of freedom that is patterned after the cross by pointing us to a true freedom that actually comes to its fullest expression in the cross 
in the person of Jesus the Messiah. And so in many ways, this is the Apostle Paul's summary of all that he has actually been talking about in these past 10 chapters. And so in our passage this evening, the Apostle Paul shows us what it looks like to have our patterns patterned, or, or, I'm sorry, our freedoms patterned after Jesus the Messiah. And so our key idea is that a people centered on the Messiah possess a cruciform freedom that exists for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And in case you didn't know what cruciform means, it means just shaped after the cross. Cruciform, okay? Shaped after the cross. And so the first point is that a cruciform freedom exists for the benefit of others. It exists for the benefit of others. Take a look at verses 23 to 24. Verse 23 and 24 again. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now by now, I I think we should know that when the Apostle Paul is is putting something in quotation marks, um, he's doing what? What is he doing? Anyone? Okay, he's actually quoting a popular saying from the Corinthians. We talked about that last week. If you remember from our previous sermons, I guess not. Um, the phrase, all things are lawful for me, was a popular catchphrase that proliferated during first century Corinth. The word for lawful here isn't the, isn't the word that we normally use for law keeping or what's legal. The word that Paul uses here is the word existent, okay? Which is actually better translated authorized. And so if we were to translate it a bit more literally, it would, the catchphrase would actually say, all things to me are authorized. In other words, if I were to paraphrase it, it would actually say that I am the authority. You want a more modern take on this? It's the freedom of choice. It's the freedom to do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want it. And when understood this way, freedom according to our culture then is the right to be entertained, to be stimulated, and to be absorbed all on our own terms. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin had uh, published an essay talking about um, our modern understanding of freedom. And uh, he wrote that many Americans almost exclusively conceive of freedom in a negative way. He wrote that many Americans uh, saw that, uh, that negative liberty or freedom is simply this, uh, this idea of this, this, this absence of obstacles, barriers, and constraints from others, from external influences. In other words, you are free if no one else is stopping you from doing what you want to do. That is what true freedom is. That's largely what our society and culture understands as freedom. And so negative freedom is a a freedom from something. And the way to get from something is to leave. Back when I was uh, was graduating from high school many, many years ago, I graduated in high school in 2008. So some of you guys were just born kind of near then. Uh, My friends and I couldn't wait to leave home for college for various reasons. Uh, Some of the reasons were good and some were were bad. Some of my friends wanted to leave home because so that they could party. Um, Some wanted to leave home not because home was bad, but because they just wanted a new experience. And so we all thought of college as this kind of like this gateway of expanding our freedoms. And some of you guys guys might even want to leave home for those very same reasons. But after our first semester back from college, and as we were sharing our our first semester experiences, we realized that college didn't turn out as well as we had all hyped it up to believe. Some of us got bored of all the freedom. Some of us made some pretty big mistakes that we actually regretted with all this newfound freedom. Um, Some of us felt lonelier than we thought uh, with all this freedom that we possessed. Some of us felt paralyzed by the dizzying amount of new choices that this newfound freedom afforded us. And it wasn't that there was anything wrong with college or this newfound freedom. 
but it was just wasn't it just wasn't what we thought it was. That that to be the masters of our own lives, decisions, fates, and destinies was a bigger burdened burden than we had actually originally thought. And what I found is that there's a certain kind of disillusionment that God allows us to experience and feel when we want our freedom so badly. God gives us exactly what we want just to allow us to feel the burden and the weight of the consequences of our choices and actions. Now, why does God do this? Well, I think it's to show us that we are not God and that we are not our own masters. It's to show us that if left to ourselves, we would actually make a mess of our lives. In fact, Augustine once wrote that free choice is sufficient for evil, but hardly for good. In other words, free choice is often what gets us into trouble, but it rarely ever bails us out. And what the Apostle Paul wants us to see, and what he has been trying to show us, is that there is a kind of freedom that does not harm. A kind of freedom that, does, that, that actually does give life, not take life away. A kind of freedom that does produce joy and doesn't suck joy out of others or yourself. And it's a freedom that is actually given by and derivative of the self-giving love and freedom of God. As the most sovereign and free individual with underived authority and freedom, God entered into his creation. The incarnation of God the Son was voluntary. It was completely uncoerced and completely free. And I think Christians just expect that God, of course, has to rescue us. But the reality is that God actually didn't. God did not have to. Being free actually means that you either want to or you don't want to. God could have just watched the world plunge themselves into the muck and mess of our lives. But out of that freely given love, he would actually voluntarily, under no compulsion of his own, enter into our world and our experience, enter into our sins and our sorrows, and he would willingly suffer the wrath of God. And it's in light of Jesus' absolute freedom that makes his lowly condescension actually so shocking. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, like if you, if anyone here in this room claims to be a follower of Jesus, then you are to live for him. But also, what that also means is that if you are a follower of Jesus, then a follower of Jesus must also live like him too. Patterning our freedom after the crucified king. And it is in light of this great exchange that we are actually given a freedom that exists for the benefit and for the life of other people not just ourselves. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that if we can only conceive of a freedom that benefits ourselves, a freedom that allows us to do whatever we want to do, a freedom that allows us to wear whatever we want to wear, listen to whatever we want to listen to, play whatever we want to play, then we've missed the whole point of what the sovereign king has actually come to do. And it is in light of what the king came to do that we can actually live out what he now calls us to do. It's to seek the good of our neighbor, as he says in verse 24. That we must pursue what is helpful in verse 23. And that we must desire what builds up. Well, how? Well, take a look at verses 25 to 30. I'm sorry, 25 to 27. We'll get to 30, the later verses in just a second. But verse 25, it says, Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. 
Now, Paul mentions conscience four times in just these one, two, three, three verses. And it seems like seeking the good of our neighbor has something to do with our conscience. And so what does conscience actually mean? Well, conscience is your personal sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong. Okay, conscience is your personal sensitivity to what is right and what is wrong. And your sensitivity to right and what's right and wrong is informed both by scripture and by the culture. Okay, so how one might understand what is right and wrong might look differently in the West Coast as opposed to the South. Okay, that looks very, very different. Even if they, they, they believe biblically on the same thing. And what this definition also means is that since it's your personal sensitivity, it also means that no two people have the same conscience. Okay, so it means that I might have a different conscience as another person in this room. Everyone has a different standard of conscience. And because it is a sensitivity to right and wrong, it also means that this sensitivity can grow or also weaken. Okay? This sensitivity can grow or weaken. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably realized that there are actually a lot of morally gray areas. One example of a morally gray area is the one that the Apostle Paul brings up with eating food sacrificed to idols in the passage that we just read. And the reason why it's morally ambiguous is because Scripture actually doesn't say that you can't eat food sacrificed to idols. In fact, in verse 26, the Apostle Paul even quotes from Psalm 24, verse 1, to justify that you can't eat meat because everything, the fullness of the earth, belongs to God. Everything that we have, eat, possess, belongs to God. And so in one sense, in one sense, everything that we own, have, eat, is not wrong. Now, as an author of almost 50% of the New Testament, I think it's safe to assume that the Apostle Paul had a pretty strong conscience, right? Meaning that he had a very heightened sense um, to what was right and what was wrong. And in, in this scenario, his scripture and his conscience reasoned that it was okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I suspect that many of you guys, you know, get your food from Trader Joe's, Ralph's, Costco, not like, you know, from a cemetery or um, a temple. Weirdos. Um, so are there, any, are there any modern day parallels that we can think of? Are there any? Can you guys think of any? Any modern day parallels? Okay, let's, let, okay, I'm gonna just think, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think for you guys, okay? So group, we're gonna group think, okay? Um, what about music? Okay, is there any kind of music that we listen to that is in and of itself that's wrong? Probably not. Uh, how about our, our clothing? Also probably not. Um, are, are the kinds of clothes, clothes that we wear morally wrong? How about the, the places that we shop at? Um, are, are the, how about are, are, are restaurants, uh, shopping centers, public spaces that have gender-neutral bathrooms, are they okay to attend or shop at? Um, and, and actually, this is a big thing for a lot of like, very, very conservative Christians in different parts of the country. Um, that they, they were like, boycotting Target because you know, they were installing gender-neutral bathrooms. Um, how, about, how about video games and other games? Are those okay? Um, are, are there any other things that you guys can think of? So maybe I just got, maybe you, you just, maybe write it down in your notes or something. If scripture and or the civil law does not prohibit us from using it, playing it, or participating in it, then based on the principle that the Apostle Paul is drawing for us, he says that we can. And I think for some of us, we need that kind of encouragement because some of us live with so much fear of what we can or can't do. Like maybe just as Christians, we've just heard for so long, like this is what you can't do, this is what you can do. If God created it, 
then it's good as long as you don't make it an idol, as the Apostle Paul writes in the previous passage. But for others, for others of us, we have, we have played God and added rules and restrictions to things that God hasn't. And we want to make sure we're not stricter than God in places and things where he allows freedom and liberty. <coughs> but I don't think the problem for most high schoolers is that they're adding more rules to what God allows. Like, I, I sincerely doubt that we're adding rules to Scripture. I really doubt that. I think a problem for high schoolers, really, is that we are subtracting stuff from Scripture. That's not my fear for this high school group. My fear isn't that you guys are being overly careful of what you might do or say or act and how it might offend others. Like, I'm pretty sure none of you guys, none of you guys are saying, like, oh, guys, we need to be really careful of, like, Brother Joe here or Brother or, or, or Sister uh, Joanna. Like, I know for sure that's not happening with the majority of you guys. Like, that's just not what's going through your minds. My fear, actually, on the other hand, is your lack of concern and, and lack of, uh, your lack of concern for the other person and their conscience. It's expected that differences grow over conscience, backgrounds, perspectives, personalities, preferences as this youth group, and even this church gets bigger and bigger. That's just expected. In fact, I take it for granted that those differences will grow, but the presence of differences isn't my fear even. My fear is that our default method of working through differences is actually just by ignoring them altogether and just doing our own thing at the expense of the other person. That is actually what my fear is. Notice what Paul says in verses 28 to 30. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Paul's fear is that we would ruin and sear the weaker and the more tender conscience of younger and less informed Christians. That is his main emphasis in these few verses here. The reason why he says to not eat it, even though he just said to eat it earlier in the passage, was because he says, for the sake of the other person who informed you. Does it make sense? You guys following Paul's logic here? It's not that hard to understand. What he's really saying is that Paul talks about the conscience of others and not your own. When he talks about the conscience of others, the principle that he's drawing for us here is that everything that you do is part of a larger whole and collective. You're just not, you're, you're, you're not an isolated individual from the lives of other people. What he's really saying is that your freedom isn't just about you or what you can or can't do anymore. A cruciform freedom, a freedom that's patterned after the crucified Messiah means that our freedom, what we can or cannot do, must be exercised now for the benefit and building up of other people. This doesn't mean that we still can't do what we want to do, but it has to be actually acted out of consideration for the other person. And I, think, I just think that high schoolers just really don't get this. Listening to this song is fine, but if it will introduce ideas or content that may compromise the integrity of another person, or if it will make someone question even your integrity, the Apostle Paul is now calling us to think twice about that. I know this is a bit more of a sensitive one, but the piece of clothing that you own is great and fine and you are free to wear it, but if it will be a source of stumbling for other people, then the consideration of another person's conscience may prohibit us from wearing it at that time and place. It doesn't mean that you can't wear it at all. It just means that maybe it might not be wise in this particular instance. Does it make sense? 
Another is if, if there's a particular game that we think is fine to play, but actually might not be good for other people to see, then the Apostle Paul also is calling us here to think twice about our actions. And my question for you, and, and, and for, for some of you guys, you guys are probably thinking, this is like super trivial stuff. Like all of this, is, this sounds super trivial. And the point is, that's the, that's the whole point. What isn't a big deal for us might not actually be a big deal, might actually be a big deal for other people. That's the point of what the Apostle Paul is saying. What might be trivial for you might not actually be trivial for other people. And the whole point is that it's not about you anymore. If you're a Christian, if you can actually call yourself a bona fide Christian, this just, this just can't be the way that you live now. It just can't be. This is a freedom that is patterned after the cross. And Paul takes it so seriously that if we compromise the conscience of another person, that we have not only sinned against God, but Paul actually says that we have actually destroyed the conscience of this other Christian. That is how seriously Paul takes the searing of other people's consciences and the seriousness of our conduct. The Apostle Paul's broader point isn't even about the gray areas. His broader point is love, love, love over liberty. Love over what you can do. Love for others over what you can do for yourself. So the the question turns from can we to should we? Question one can be asked. It's fine to ask that question. But question two has to take priority. God's permission, as I've mentioned before, is not the same as God's approval. So to aid you in loving and pursuing the highest good of another person, I, want you, I just want to give you guys four brief ways on seeking the benefit of other people. The first is welcome those who disagree with you. Welcome them. Welcome those who disagree with you. There will be, always be someone who has a stronger conscience than you and someone with a weaker conscience. Like I will ha- always have someone, uh, someone who has a stronger conscience than me, unfortunately. Um, and and there will also be someone who who have a weaker conscience. And in that moment, in, in those scenarios, in those situations, God desires for you to pursue unity even amongst those different consciences. Does that make sense? There may be things to disagree with, but as a Christian, you actually have much more to agree with than just your preferences, backgrounds, and personality. Our first reaction to someone who differs with us usually is we want to change their minds and to convince them that we're right. Paul doesn't say anywhere in this passage or even similar passages that the weak even need to change their view. While he makes it clear that he doesn't agree with them and that they still need to grow, he doesn't tell them to change their minds, nor does he get impatient with them and look down upon them, which I think many high schoolers are prone to do. And while Paul would undoubtedly support more mature Christians uh, to mature and equip and to educate younger Christians as fully as possible about Scripture, Paul is also wise enough to know that there is a time and place to talk about that. And as long as it doesn't hinder or become an obstacle for division, Paul even models a way to love through differences as well. Secondly, a stronger conscience does not equal stronger Christians. That's really important for us here. A stronger conscience does not mean that you are a stronger Christian. Just because you know more, doesn't mean that you are a wiser and more mature Christian. Because just look at the Corinthians. They knew scripture in and out. They were able to quote it to Paul. They had a theology that was completely airtight and Paul still had to own them. 
in 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. And he has to write another, another letter in 2 Corinthians. Those with a stronger conscience does not necessarily please God any more than someone with a weaker conscience. Both can honor Jesus and both can still sin against God, especially as in the case of stronger Christians or stronger, the stronger Corinthians. And so the rule of thumb when it comes to those with stronger conscience is always be stricter with yourself and be generous and charitable with others. Always be stricter on yourself and generous with those outside of you. Those with weaker consciences likewise shouldn't despise those with stronger consciences. The third is that each Christian, in light of the difference between stronger conscienced Christians and weaker conscienced Christians, in light of that, well, we also need to recognize that each Christian needs to be fully convinced of their own conscience. Okay, don't sin against your conscience by wanting and pursuing the freedom of stronger Christians if you're not fully convinced that what the other person doing that what the other person is doing is right. Okay? Does it make sense? So for example, some Christians think that it's a sin to participate in Halloween and some don't. Those who sh- those who don't think it's a, a, a good idea to shouldn't sin uh, their conscience against their conscience by participating in Halloween just because they're told that it's okay. Okay? So while it's scripturally scripture allows the, the, the participation to happen, if you still think that it's not okay, then don't do it. That's what Paul is saying. Don't do it. This doesn't mean that your conscience, is, conscience, again, like I said, is always right, but it also means that you shouldn't sin against your conscience. Okay? And fourth, fourth, you want to discern whether or not you should participate in this activity. And how do you discern? I, I have, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four. I have seven questions. Okay, well, the first is, am I fully persuaded? Am I fully persuaded that Scripture actually allows it? Am I fully persuaded? And usually... I'm just going to be honest, I'm pretty sure you can probably not reason your way out of certain things uh, using scripture. Um, just ask me and I can point you in another direction. Um, but usually, this is just where the first question will usually stop for us. We're not quite convinced that scripture actually does allow it. The second question is, can, it, can I do it without actually dishonoring God? Can I do it without dishonoring God? Can, can I do it without being a source of stumbling for other people? Okay, this is just, by it, I mean anything. I don't, I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what weird things you guys do, okay? Um, the fourth is, does it bring unity? Does it unite? Does it, bring, does it bring people together or does it tear people apart? Does it make people feel welcome, a part of the group, or does it not? Uh, one, two, three, four, five, okay. Does it build, does it build up other people? Okay, does it, does it edify them? Does it, is it profitable for them, to, for you, and not just for you, but for this other person to participate in this activity? And then sixth is, is it a good use of your time? Is it a good use of your time? Now, obviously, some things are just fun and poor uses of our time, but whatever. I mean, that's fine. But there are some things that completely just waste our time. And I think some of us know what those things are. And then finally and lastly, the more positive way, the more positive way of looking at discerning these kinds of things is, will it allow me to love God more or this thing more? Okay, will it allow me to love God more or this thing more? Okay, so seven basic questions, um, and, um, and again, I, these, these applications are by no means exhaustive. Uh, Christian conscience is just the tip of the iceberg of, Christ, of cultivating Christian maturity and wisdom. And even mature Christians still grow in maturing in their conscience too. Sometimes I don't even know how to answer these questions. But what I hope you'll see in the words of the Apostle Paul is that the ethics of the Christian life is completely others-centered. 
because of the others-centered God. So when in doubt, think about other people. Okay, just when in doubt, just think about others. Where would we be if he did not of his own accord lay his life down for us? Where would we go if he did not have the words of eternal life? So we seek and, and, and love the good of others, not just for their own sake, but because of the one who came from heaven and sought us. So that's the first point. This is definitely by far the longest point. Um, a cruciform freedom uh, exists for the benefit of others. And secondly and finally, a cruciform freedom exists for the glory of God. Now take a look um, at verses 31 to 33. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they, that they may be saved. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us his final and concluding remarks by, by now generali- generalizing that everything that we do, whether we eat or drink, must not only be done for the benefit of others, but for the glory of God. And, you know, as Christians, like, this is like, this is like our John 3.16 at Lighthouse Community Church. Like, do everything for the glory of God. Like, that's like, literally, like, that's like, that's like a, that's like your, like, your lock screen. That's like, uh, that's like Christian's license plate frame. Um, it's, it's honestly like, people don't even know what it means anymore. Okay, it's like a tautology. Like, you know, what does, you know, living for the glory of God means? Well, obviously, it, leaves, it means like living for the glory of God. Uh, that means nothing. So what does it mean? Um, I think Paul's clarification here is actually very helpful. Because sometimes we can actually pursue the good of others without actually pursuing the fame and honor of God's name. How is this possible? It's because there's a difference between putting the interests of others as more important than your own and just wholesale approving and going along with whatever people want to do because you just simply can't bear the thought of their disapproval. Okay, there's a difference between actually seeking the good of another person and using the seeking of the good of another person as a shroud for seeking the interests of yourself. Does it make sense? I mean, it's so easy how like our sinful hearts can craft all sorts of ways to still benefit ourselves by seeking the interests of others. We can turn seeking the benefit of others as a way to benefit ourselves and, make, and to make sure that we're well-liked. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to guard us from the temptation that we can still turn the pursuit of others' interests as a way to pursue our own self-preservation and our own self-interest. And in reality, the Apostle Paul is trying to save us from ourselves. Well, how? It's because if our love for others still serves us, then we will never be satisfied. When we aren't willing to give up our freedoms for the sake of ourselves, for, for the sake of our others, it actually reveals a more fundamental idolatry, an enslavement, an enslavement to ourselves. You know, I've, I've had friends who've, who've bounced from friend to friend, hoping that this friendship would finally match the amount of time and energy that they've invested and hoping that this person will be the friend of all friends. And they ultimately end up getting disappointed because either their friends didn't match their intensity or their friendship wasn't what they expected it to be. And it was because they saw their friend at the end of the day as a means to their own personal ends. And the great irony is that in their pursuit of an ultimate friendship above all friendships, they actually became even more lonely, perpetuating this constant search for friendship. But when we pursue the the glory of God, rather than our own glory in our friendships and how we pursue the good of others without any regard to how it may actually benefit us, then it means that we can actually take risks 
great risks in our friendships, even if we don't get the response from others that we anticipated. It means that we can actually lose our freedoms for the sake of another because we still have the enjoyment and pleasure of God. We still have been satisfied by the glory and the goodness of God. We still have the one stable thing that will never ever change, that will sustain us through all of life. It is the glorious God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory of God, like I mentioned, isn't just some nice thing to do or to say or to put on your license plate, on your lock screen. The glory of God is what we were made for. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks this question. It asks, what is the chief end of man? Its answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If someone asks you, what were you made to do? You were to say, I was made to enjoy God in such a way that if I lose anything in this world, freedoms, friendship, grades, success, approval, I still have the glorious God. That is what actually can sustain us. It's not our freedoms. It's the glory of God. It's God himself. If freedom is the ability to choose what makes us happy, what what satisfies us, what will make us fulfilled, then our pursuit of freedom is really what's known as a pursuit of fullness. That our pursuit of freedom is actually this pursuit of finding something that will finally, like I mentioned last week, that will finally be enough. You know, there's this, uh, there's this philosopher named Charles Taylor who wrote this gigantic book, this, this, this thick book called A Secular Age, and it's a book that tracks the movement of how society became secular. Okay, and you don't need to read the, the book. It's really long. So let me just give you a TLDR, okay? Um, in the opening pages of his book, that just goes to show how far I went in his book, um, he says that modern culture is always in pursuit of this state of being called fullness. He writes, somewhere in some activity or condition lies a fullness, a richness that is in that place, life is richer, fuller, deeper, more worthwhile, more admirable, more what it should and ought to be like. And so when we have fullness, then we have this sense of richness where where we have no sense of need or lack. And he writes that our modern culture has constructed all these different ways to find fullness. Fullness in our grades, fullness in what others think of us, fullness in our friendships, fullness in our success, fullness in, in schools. But the problem is that the more we pursue these things, the more we often find or I guess the, the less full we become. The more we turn to the creation for fullness, the less satisfied we become by the creation. But what if the glory of God, in pursuing and finding our, our fullness, our satisfaction, our, our richness, our fulfillment in God himself, is what if the glory of God is actually what does satisfy us and bring us to a place where life is so lush and so full of his kindness and mercy, that we can extend that same kindness and mercy to others at great cost to ourselves and great, at great cost to our own freedoms. Where when we do all things to the glory of God, like Eric Liddell, he says that we can actually feel the pleasure of God. And I think that's what Paul is getting at when he calls us to do all things for the glory of God. It's because when we do all things for the glory of God, then it doesn't matter what others think or don't think when you get the approval of others or not, when you get the grade you want or not, because it's never really been about that. It's always been about 
Him. Finding yourself in Him. When we lean into the fact that we've been created to enjoy God, to glorify Him, then we actually find that we are actually becoming who we were always meant to be. A new way of being human. A new human. That, that's the reality. That you, as, as you enjoy God, you are actually becoming a new, a new human. And when this happens, is as the church father Irenaeus once wrote, he says that when, the that he, when he says that the glory of God is man fully alive. The glory of God is man fully alive. Take a look finally at chapter 11, verse, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Apostle Paul sets himself as a model of imitation, but not because he is worthy, but because of what his life points to. The crucified Messiah. It's always been about him. And I wish I had more time to talk about uh, models uh, of those who follow Jesus, um, but let me just finish the story that I started in the beginning of the message. You know, going back to Karen and, and her mom, uh, over time, her, her mom's memory worsens. Um, and over time, Karen's mom begins to develop negative associations with Karen, treating Karen as if she was a stranger, even though she was her very own daughter. Eventually, her, her memory loss is so total that she can't even remember who Karen is. And on some days, her mom isn't even sure if she likes Karen. If you were Karen, what would you have done? And as the episode draws to a close, Karen talks about how her mom was talking about strawberries and immediately a flood of memories uh, rushes to her head and how her mom and her dad and her uh, were out picking strawberries at a strawberry field when she was very young. But she realizes, Karen realizes that she can't even talk about that memory with her mom anymore because she doesn't even remember it. So instead of talking about what happened in her childhood, instead of talking about what was about something that was very dear and near to, to Karen's own heart, Rather than saying the words that she wants to say, she says, she says different ones. And Karen asks her mom, so tell me where the, the strawberry patch was. Karen realized that in order to love her mom, she would have to deny herself completely. In order to love her mom and continue this conversation that she has with her about strawberry, strawberries and strawberry fields, she would have to silently let go of every single memory of herself and her mom. No memory or experience would ever include her anymore even though she was in it. No conversation would ever be about them. Karen would never be able to talk about what she wanted to talk about. In order to love her mom, Karen would have to actually literally bury her memories in the grave. Karen would find that she had to die to herself. And if you were in Karen's shoes, would you be able to do something like, to just forget yourself in the conversation? To forget yourself in the relationship? Can you make a sacrifice like this? to be able to just forget yourself completely for the sake of another person. Who here is willing to deny themselves in a way that is so complete and total like this, but in a more profound and deeper way? What person do I know, what, per what person do you know who is willing to do something like this, to put another family member so utterly before themselves in this way? What person do I know who in fact has done this and even more has gone above and beyond this? What person would voluntarily erase his existence from a world that he created? What person would voluntarily lay his life down for his sheep to bring them back into the fold? 
This person shouldn't have come into this world. He shouldn't have been betrayed or mocked. He shouldn't have been abandoned by his friends. He shouldn't have been spat on. He shouldn't have experienced the wrath of God, and yet he did. Because as the sovereign king, out of sheer freedom and sheer delight, he did for us. That is just simply what love does. As God the Son, Jesus applied limits to his infinite freedom in his incarnation because he loved us. I mean, just, I mean, just think about the incarnation for just a second. Like, the eternal God came as a, a human being. Like, nothing speaks of humility like that. That is who the Apostle Paul's life testifies to. The Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. The Son of God who sets us free. You see, freedom isn't about leaving. It isn't about getting outside of the constraints that control us or constrict us and bound us, or bind us, rather. Freedom is about being found. Freedom is about being found and living into his freedom. A people centered on the Messiah possess a cruciform freedom that exists for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. Let's pray. God, we need your help. And I think for some of these guys here, they're so familiar with this passage or even just the ideas behind this passage that they can just skate by. But God, I pray that they would not, especially in light of the king who did this for us. I pray that we would be challenged by this, that you would call us into a a deeper self-sacrifice, a deeper, not just a deeper self-sacrifice, but a deeper finding of ourselves in you as we give of ourselves to others. So God, we thank you and we love you. Peace out in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.